1 Corinthians 14 tonight. By the way, did you get that picture I sent you? Brother Ed. <laughs> we, uh, uh, I replaced the uh, baptistry heater uh, yesterday. They don't look so surprised, Joel. I can do a few things. Amen. <laughs> but I must openly and publicly confess that those who have gone on before me made it super simple. There was something in the back of my mind last time that uh, baptistry heater was replaced, which is it's a flow-through heater, and there's an element with a the thermostat control box on top of it. And the last time that was replaced was in 2017. And when it was replaced, there were some things done underneath this baptistry, including a little diagram. That was very helpful to me. It was really easy to put it in, take it, you know, put the new one in, that sort of thing. But um, let me know the indicator light should be on if it's working. Because there's a little light, and I'm like, now, is that a warning light or is that a running light? And there were no instructions with this thing. But the other thing that was a blessing was when we ordered that part and it took a chase down to get it, we got two of them. And so there was one sitting in there in a nice secure place, ready to go. And uh, we put it in, and I put it in. Brother Carpenter helped me during part of it. We had a little bit of an interesting moment, but we got over that. And um, anyway, the, uh, uh, I immediately, as soon as it was done back under here, went and uh, to the office and called and ordered another part. So it'll be in, and then we'll have it sitting there. And that's the way to do it. That way you aren't waiting uh, last time it was a delay because trying to find a place and all that we get in from California. So anyway, uh, six hundred and seventeen or eighteen dollars, and uh, so that's what they cost. If you run one out, that's why we do our. We have to upgrade that. I, I used to call it the three hundred dollar walk. Now it's a six hundred dollar walk. Uh, he he knows brother Carpenter and I. When I was turning the usually I turn the baptistry heater on, but before we go there and sw- flip that switch, we come up here and make sure there's water in that tub. And uh, it's, it has a limiting switch, so if there's not water pressure, it should not kick on the heat. But like a switch of that power with it not the way it should be, could be that could be an expensive sort of switch. And so with that, and uh, so anyway, if, if one of the two of us blow that out, we've agreed to take it out of Jody's pay. Um, <laughs> no, she signs a check. Sorry, Miss Sheldon. She, <laughs> yours is going down. <laughs> she signs the checks. Nope, not taking hers. <laughs> <laughs> One must be more judicious who you pick on in the church, amen. First Corinthians 14. Coming back to our series on Bible truths for today, and uh, we've taken a little bit of a little bit of a pause in that as we've been dealing with some other situations and and, uh, and other passages of the scripture. And then we are going to be finishing the seven churches in Asia. I was working on that earlier in the week, and so we'll be going to Thyatira next in that. So all these things coming up. But uh, Bible truths for today, and, and the title I've given this for uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is Charity, Clarity, and the Importance of Distinct Speech. Charity, Clarity, and the Importance of Distinct Speech. Now what we're going to do, we're going to do a bit of an in-depth study of the first 12 verses of chapter 14. And then we're going to read the last verses, last 18 verses of the chapter, just read through them. And what will happen is they will unfold and make a lot of sense to you, those last 18 verses, because of what we study in the first 12 verses, which, which sets the stage for the rest of it there with that. Let's ask the Lord to guide our minds tonight, and let's get into His Word together. Father, help me to help Your people. Uh, Lord, I want to give them what You want them to have tonight. I know in this chapter, I know what I've studied on, but Lord, in the speaking, help me to emphasize. And, and uh, Lord, if anything's detracting or distracting, let me avoid that. 
And Lord, I'd like to be used well of you tonight to help your people. And I pray you'll bless to that end. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Pretty interesting. Let's look in the first 12. I'm going to go through more narrative style, teaching you as we go. But look in chapter 14, verse 1. It says, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Now, think with me a moment and a little bit of review, bring our mind back online with this. When we studied 1 Corinthians 12, it dealt with spiritual gifts. Things that the Spirit of God gives to a believer so that that believer may be profitable for the Lord, may be helpful to the body of Christ, to His church, and may be beneficial to himself. And so those gifts are given. They vary. Do you remember about that? That there's, there's different, uh, different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different administrations, but the same Lord. Different operation, but the same God overall, who is in all. And you remember teaching about those things. That's the same Spirit. And while they differ, they're not at odds with each other. Also, we learned in that, uh, that the Corinthians struggled with the situation where they tried to, one thought because they had an ability that someone else didn't have, they were getting prideful over that, or they were feeling downcast because they couldn't do what somebody else could do. And of course, then the Lord teaches much about that, how the body, as he describes his church, his body needs all of its, its parts, and they're all important, all the different parts of that body. And so that was 1 Corinthians 12. And 1 Corinthians 12 ended with the verse it says desire earnestly covet uh, the best gifts and yet i show unto you a more excellent way and then that more excellent way is first corinthians 13 which of course deals with charity and we went into detail about charity what does charity look like what does it act like we didn't just go with a clinical definition, but we looked at how does charity work? What, what does it look like in, in people's lives? Why is it so vitally important in the Bible that the Bible says, now abide faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these, and you think about those three, the greatest of these is charity. By the way, part of that is because faith has to do with this life. Do you know that you do not have faith in the sense we have it now when you get to heaven? It's replaced by sight. I can look around and I would you know, say, oh, I believe this person will be here on Wednesday night. They usually are and unless something has happened or come up or whatever. Maybe they're ill or they had to work or something. They'll, they'll, they'll be there. They're regularly there. In a sense, forgive, this is a little bit of a weak illustration, but forgive me that. But I have faith that somebody would be here. But when you came and you came in the door, there's no longer faith. They're here. Somebody says, you think they'll be there? No, I don't think they'll be here. They're here. I know they're here. And uh, now physically, I can't guarantee the whole package of you showed up, but you're here physically, all right? That counts for something. And, and so the faith translates into sight much more on a much more grand scale of things. When we see heaven, we won't have to have faith that there's a place called heaven. We'll be in heaven. We won't have, any longer have to have faith that there was a man who was God in the flesh, who was God while he didn't cease to be God, while he became man, and his name is Jesus Christ, and that he was crucified. We'll see him. We don't have to have faith to believe that our loved ones are there and are in the condition and the care that you would expect when an eternal loving God has them in his very bosom of kindness and holds them to himself. We'll see them. Nothing, nothing about that. That tree of life and the river of the water of life and all those things. No longer will that be faith. That'll be sight. So faith is a this world thing. And hope's the same way. 
Hope is the substance, or faith is the substance thing hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Things hoped for, wait a minute, when you see them, you're not hoping for it anymore. There it is. We have it. And so, but do you know charity is eternal? It goes right on past the limitations of this life. So, charity, God's love in you working towards other people. You being a vehicle of God's love to express it. That's charity. That's a great thing. And 1 Corinthians 13 deals with it. Then you come to 1 Corinthians 14. And what you have in 1 Corinthians 14, you go into visiting again here the fact the Corinthian church had some real problems with this issue of gifts. Really problems. And one of the ones they had the biggest problem with is the word tongues. Now, let me tell you a perversion of our age, which has been since early 1900s. Actually, the tongues as the charismatics call tongues, that's been around longer than that. Uh, the Mormons have spoke, spoken tongues prior to the 1900s. Some of the outlying groups did. Um, the uh, Peter Cartwright, who was a, a, a Methodist circuit-riding preacher, he preached in this very town when it was still called uh, New Lancaster, and it was still called the Hockhocking River, and uh, had a revival out at the campgrounds, and he gives some detail on that in his autobiography. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he ran against Abraham Lincoln for... Uh, for a political seat in in in, uh, in Illinois, and so anyway, just an amazing fella. Peter Cartwright encountered tongue-speaking Mormons in what the Charismatics call tongue, a, a, a gibberish, a a so-called unknown, meaning that no human knew what it was. That is not what tongues ever was in the Bible. It's not what it is. But what it was is what it is, which is languages. Some people have the gift of tongues. You know there was a man who was the translator, one of the translators of the King James Bible. They said was fluent in fifty. It was either fifty-three or fifty-eight languages. My friends, that's the gift of tongues. I had a friend by the name of Oscar Saroof, who was from Beirut, Lebanon, and you got to be thinking this is nineteen eighty-two when I was in college in in Houston, Texas, eighty-two, eighty-three that that winter. And Oscar Sarouf, that doesn't mean anything to you younger folks, but Beirut, Lebanon was just a complete, uh, a, a complete battleground and had been for years. And Oscar was trilingual. He could flip uh, just in a moment's notice just as fluently English, Arabic, or French. Those were his three words. In fact, I remember, this will blow some of your mind, when you were in college back then, you might get one phone call home a week because there's no such thing as cell phones. You couldn't FaceTime somebody. And you had to make it without mommy and daddy, without you having some kind of nervous breakdown and learn how to make it. Say, so, well, if you're in our money and stuff, you work. What if somebody treated you wrong? You learned how to survive or passed it on to somebody else or whatever. And I still remember I was talking to my wife, who was not my wife time. She was finishing high school. She was still in high school and I used some of my coins I had to call her from a payphone in our dorm in Houston. So I'm talking to my girl back in Ohio, and Oscar's bouncing around from me. I was thinking about throwing him off this little two-story balcony we had. He was annoying me. And uh, he, let me talk. Is that your girl? That's your girl. That's your girl. And he's talking. He had this accent. I said, Oscar, what are you doing? I said, I don't have much time. You don't know what that means either. But anyway, um, <laughs> he's like, let me speak to her. I want to meet her. That's the way he talked. Okay, Oscar. I put him on. He starts talking to her in French. I'm like, give me the phone, you idiot. And I pulled it back, and he goes, 
French. It always gets them. I talk to the ladies in French. I said, I'll break your neck after I'm done talking. And so, anyway, it was wild. But Oscar, his, uh, in fact, we were, I got to tell you this, we were in First Baptist Church of, of Houston, Texas. Dr. John Bassanio, who is one of the biggest named preachers in the Southern Baptist Convention. Although, I didn't learn that until years later. I just knew it was a big church. And I went down there. I was, I was in First Church of God College, but those people couldn't preach away out of a wet paper bag. And so I went around to find churches that were preaching the Bible and ended up in the Baptist Church. And, uh, and so I was in First Baptist Church with Dr. Bazzano was preaching. And the way they did things there, which you never have to worry about me doing here because I think it's uncomfortable for people, their guests remained seated and all the members stood up at handshaking time and then the members go around and shake people's hands. I don't know about you, but being put in a large crowd and remaining seated while people are coming at you standing up to me is not the idea of making somebody feel welcome. All right? But that's the way they did things and it, it was a pretty neat church in so many ways. Oscar came back. We were all going there. I took a carload of guys with me every Sunday. And Oscar came back just dying laughing. He had a weird sense of humor. And I'm like, Oscar, what are you laughing about? He says, I spoke to everyone I met in Arabic. They will think this is charismatic church. Yes? And I'm like, Oscar, sit down and don't get back up. All right? And so one of the big problems that Corinth had came around that one specific gift. The gift of tongues. Now you have to understand this city of Corinth was a crossroads city where a lot of different cultures, a lot of different people came through. It was a urban metropolitan center. I've told you before, the name means ornament. It, it, was a, it, it, it was looked at as a jewel and looked at as a prestigious city in which to live, to do business, to be from. And uh, one of the things they prided themselves in, and pride was a major problem in Corinth, one of the things they prided themselves in was uh, their, their uh, worldliness in the sense of uh, they, they knew a lot about travel. They knew a lot about different places. And it was considered very much up here to be able to have more than one language. And especially if you thought or if God had gifted you to understand language. Especially if it was a more miraculous circumstance where you didn't previously know that language. And so people... Uh, sought after that and looked for it. And I'm not just going to teach you that from a historical perspective, but I'm giving you the groundwork for it. But look in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Notice these things with what we said. Notice what happens. You had 1 Corinthians 13. You have charity. It's bracketed by the end of 1 Corinthians 12. It says, I will show you a more excellent way. It talks about charity. And then the first phrase in chapter 14, follow after charity. And so this chapter starts with saying, follow after charity. That's what you go after. And desire spiritual gifts. Said you should want them, but rather that you may prophesy. And sometimes in the history of the Bible, that's been giving forth the Word of God as the apostles and the prophets did, where they didn't have the written Word of God, and they were giving forth the Word of God at certain times. But it also, as you're dealing with it now, prophecy, you'll, you'll deal more with the interpretation of the Word of God where it's explained, it's opened up, it's read, it's, it's explained out. It has to do with the preaching and the giving forth of the Word of God because this is the same Word of God that was given by inspiration to the prophets and to the apostles. And that same God who inspired it has preserved it. And that same God will help us to understand it and give it forth now. And so as I'm reading the very verses tonight, I'm as much speaking to you inspired words as an apostle would have. Not in the same mode. I didn't hear a voice from heaven. I didn't see it written and write it down. I'm not claiming that. 
But these words, God has kept. And this message, God has kept for us. And as long as I'm reading the Scripture, I'm right on God's words. Now, as I explain them to you and that sort of thing, hopefully I stay right on track with that. But you might come along and say, I wonder, you know, or maybe does that fit over here? And you'd be fine to do that. But we can't detract from what the words themselves say. And so we're blessed people here, you know, in 2023 to actually have the words of God. And so thank God for it. I appreciate it much. And uh, so anyway, it says follow after charity. That term follow after caught my attention. Let me give you just some verses and please just listen with careful attention. If you want to know where all these are, I have the list. I can give it to you afterwards. But listen to this concept of following after because it's important. It says follow after charity. What does that mean? What does it mean to follow after something? Listen to these verses. I think it will give you the biblical understanding. Uh, It says uh, in Isaiah 51, it says, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Romans 14 has these words. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. Philippians chapter 3 says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. First Timothy 6 gave instruction. It said, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. So to follow after is to determine your direction, to, to, to let whatever you're following influence the direction you're taking. To let whatever you're following guide you in your day-by-day decisions. Now, look at that in verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after charity. That matches closely that passage in Romans where it deals with following after those things which make for righteousness and peace. Are we following that which makes for righteousness? You know, uh, somebody becomes a follower of something. Maybe there's a, a radio personality and they're a follower of it. It affects them. It does. We're human beings. Things affect us. Sometimes people act like, oh, nothing affects me. Right. Um, It does. I'm not saying everybody to the same degree, but everybody does to one degree or another. And we'll follow after somebody. They affect us. So uh, sometimes you can tell when somebody first starts singing the songs of God and they're learning that the songs of God are more than just words about Jesus. I think about something I just just listened to. Someone I believe loved the Lord, not anyway associated with our church. But... The lady who's singing had kept a breathy tone in songs. The songs were good. The arrangement was good. But the way she was singing it wasn't out and out provocative, harlotish, but it was very breathy. It wasn't just her voice. And I thought, I know what kind of musical genre she's come from by what I'm hearing. Because she's not yet quite got rid of that. And so it's that almost seductive sound to a voice where it's going. And uh, you say, why? Because what we follow after affects us. You say, well, I don't want that to happen. No, 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 no. God designed it that way. The, 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 the thing we're supposed to do is, is find the right things to follow. And can I say to you, following after charity? When you're in the Bible, you find out what charity looks like, what God's love through people looks like. Follow that 
Follow what leads to that, you get you in the right spot. And it will affect you. It influences you. It, 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 it goes, it, look, you know this. You watch young people. You can tell when the influences in their life change them. You watch it. You can see it. You can see people's lives and what they do. And if you've been in church very long and have any discernment at all, you can see when someone starts changing, they start changing what they're doing, they start changing their, their actions and stuff. What are they doing? Why? Because they're following after something. Huh. Well, okay. It would be unscriptural to tell people, just don't follow anything. God doesn't even teach us that. The thing we're supposed to do is follow that which is right. Follow the Lord. Learn how to follow good and let that, let that influence us. And so follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts rather that you may prophesy. By the way, don't be scared. I know that's the first verse, but that was going to be a long one, all right? You're saying, I'm counting the verses, calculating time. Okay, um, if he's not looking my way, I'm heading out. Um, look at verse 2. I told you they were very concerned about this thing of the tongues. There are a lot of gifts that could have been discussed, but this was one that needed attention. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. Okay, I'll give you an example. Brother Akamani was here. Brother, Brother Jenkins asked him if he would pray in his own native tongue. Brother Jenkins kind of qualified that and said, this, you know, this is what we're going to be doing. We want our standing, but he feels more liberty, so let's just listen and he'll pray. And he prayed in his natural tongue. Now, he wasn't speaking to any of us at all. We couldn't amen his prayer. We couldn't pray along with his prayer. Brother Jenkins kind of said up and said, this, you know, this is what's going to happen with this, but I just want him to be able to pray. And so you know what he's doing? He's speaking to God, not man. You know, does anybody in here speak Russian? Yes. Pardon? Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Uh, they, so if someone were to come in here suppose Brother Sam Wilson Brother Sam speaks Russian Brother Sam came in here and he and Rhonda if they visited our church Brother Sam Wilson stood up in here stood in this pulpit and delivered a good sound Bible message and he's a good sound Bible preacher and delivered a heartfelt message and did it to this congregation all in Russian would it do us any good at all? At the most, watch this, it might wow somebody say, oh man, he's, he's good at that language, which would draw attention to him. Which is exactly the same thing that happens when a preacher puts on airs and tries to talk above his congregation. When he aims for eloquence. When his goal is to be technical. None of that is fitting for God's work. Um... However, Brother Sam had an opportunity, I don't know, two, three years ago anyway, where he got to preach and it was broadcast across all the time zones of Russia. Can you imagine? Now, he did that broadcast in Russian. Part of the reason he was sought out was because he's a Bible believer and he could speak Russian because of his time in Russia and in Ukraine. Now, wait, wait a minute, hold on. Do you suppose it did people a lot of good to hear that? 
But if you had turned into that through the internet or whatever the agency was by which they did that broadcast, and that's a remarkable thing that that happened. You're not going to get one transmitter that's going to send it across Russia. And so there were some connections being allowed to do that that were just remarkable. But here's the thing about it. If he had did that across America, there's a small part of our population that would be helped by it. Do you see what I'm saying? So the tongues, that, you've got to understand that about tongues. There was a reason for them. I'll show you what it was. Look at this and let's see what happens. Uh, verse 2 again. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understand him. Howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesies speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. That is the threefold purpose of preaching. Edification, that's, that's building people. Exhortation, that's getting people to act on what they've learned and to go forward. It's, it's, it has to do with motivation at times. It has to do with building up so that people can go forward. And then comfort. Why? So they can, they can stay at it in the long run and they can, they can keep at this. And so that's the threefold purpose of that as we look at it here. Now, let me show you something with this. In verse, look at verse 4. It says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue, who does he edify? Look at the verse. Himself. But he that prophesieth, speaking forth the word of God, who does he edify? The church. Okay, so this is laid out clearly. You have one situation that edifies the speaker. Builds him. And a great speaker. Wow, what a speaker. Boy, didn't he talk good. Oh man, isn't he good? No, 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 no. No, let's see more of Christ. And so what? That we would be able to look at this and then say, hey, wait a minute, what about the church being helped? I love hearing, and we'll have guest preachers in and such, and, and uh, I love to hear after, after someone's preached, I love when individuals say, that helped me, and you're very specific about that. That did something for me, and you're specific about it. That's what's supposed to be going on. God's church is supposed to be helped and built. There's a purpose behind it. It's not just you know slap at it, come up with a good idea, and mess it sound good. Why well, does I make a good sermon, brother? That'll preach, you know. And but there's nothing to it. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to edify. There's a purpose behind what's supposed to be going on with it, and uh, it's going on. Now look at this. We're talking about an unknown tongue. The question has to be asked: To whom is it unknown? And the issue he's dealing with here is one that would be unknown to the church that's hearing it. That's the issue he's dealing with with this. Look in verse 5. I would that you all spake with tongues. He said, that's fine. By the way, Paul was multilingual. And it shows up in the Bible. You can do that. At one point, he's preaching, he's preaching to a, a group and they start rioting. So he turns around and addresses the group in Hebrew. Then he turns around and, and addresses one of the officials in Greek. It says, can thou also speak Greek? And he answered it. He could, Paul knew languages. He could go back and forth. And had the capacity to do it. He spoke to this Jewish crowd that was getting all riled up because when they heard, the Bible says, when they heard him in their own tongue, in Hebrew, they settled down and listened. Because if he tried to address them some other way, even though some of them, and in that time period, probably a good number of them spoke another language, that's a barbaric language to them. That's not the real language. The real language is Hebrew. And so he spoke to them in their, their, own, their own tongue with this. Then he says, um, verse 5, I would that you all spake with tongues. He said, that'd be wonderful. Can you imagine that? If everybody here could go to Columbus sometime this week and talk to P3 
people in their own language. So maybe somebody who's here from Somalia and in their tongue, their mother tongue, they may speak some English or whatever, but you could speak to them about the gospel and clearly. Suppose that next time that half of you are at a Mexican restaurant and you could do more than just order by number and they get upset because they don't know what no red sauce means. I want cheese. Um, they, if you could actually talk to them with that, Suppose you could go down there at the China Buffet, the hangout of every Baptist on Christmas Day when you've been in church, apparently. Amen? And uh, we didn't. I can't do Chinese. There's MSG hidden in that food. They, I'm not being... I'm, this is not an ethnic slur. They will lie to you at Chinese restaurants. It has, it has MSG in it, so I'd stay away from it. I'm, I'm allergic to it. I can't get into it. So we went to Waffle House, amen, and, uh, and did that. That was, our great, that was our great between service meal. We had a great time with it. We really did. It was enjoyable. But uh, if you could go in there and speak Cantonese, ask, ask the servers and the people in the back what that meat actually is. You might be joining me at Waffle House. Amen? <laughs> See, you think, you think some of those places are called Mongolian diners. You mispronounce it. It's Mongolian <laughs> Anyway, um, and so here's what happens. This, this tongues, he said, I would that you all speak with tongues, but rather that you prophesy. For greater is he that prophesied than he that speaketh with tongues. And so he's already qualified that by saying, prophesying, speaking to the church so they can be edified rather than speaking something that's unknown to them so that they can't be edified. You say, well, where in the world did the idea of it's this heavenly language and all this, and most of it, really, it's got the same cadence and sound to it. How many of you have been around it? I have. How many of you been around tongues, what they call tongues, the charismatic stuff? It's all got the same cadence to it. It has a musical, I could, I'm not going to do it, but I can, I can sound like it by reciting motorcycles, but it, it sounds, uh, literally, there's, there's a pop to it, there's, there's a cadence to it if you've been around it a bunch of times. So where, how'd that all show up? Four square gospel movement. That's how it got mainstream. Amy Simple McPherson, the so-called woman preacher, Topeka, Kansas, if you want to know, in the 20s. That's where that came from. There's a history to this stuff. And that's where it went mainstream in America. Now here's the thing about it. It's even taught that if you don't have that gift, you don't actually have the Holy Ghost. Well, if you don't have the Holy Ghost, you're not saved. Somebody teaches you that you get saved and sometime later the Holy Ghost comes to live inside of you, they don't know the Bible. They're teaching you incorrectly. You know, when Ephesians says be filled with the Spirit, it's not talking about the Spirit just coming to you first time. It's talking about being filled. It's talking about you and I getting out of the way so God can control us. There's a lot here. Let me get on with this. Look at it. Um, it said in verse 5, I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesied, for greater is he that prophesied than he that speaketh with tongues, except he what? Interpret. So you make whatever language you're speaking understandable to those who are in front of you. Now, when I spoke to the people in Haiti, and God called men who are still in the ministry to preach that night, it would not have happened if there was not interpretation. I could not interpret the, the Creole language. I do not have the gift of tongues. So instead, what we did, Brother Biz who speaks English and his native, his mother tongue is, is the Creole tongue. And don't think Louisiana. It's, it's, it's different in Haiti. It's similar. Uh, brother, brother Darren had a neat name for it, but it was, uh, it is a, uh, it's a different, it's a French derivative language. 
and uh, which means I had no chance of speaking it. But he, 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 Brother Biz and I have a similar preaching style, a similar deliverance style. I had interviewed all kinds of men who had preached in other countries and got some great warnings about this will mess it up while you're doing it. It's hard to interpret if you do this, how you have to break things down. You stay away from idioms, you know, things that we have here. Yeah, there are certain phrases that are very American phrases and they don't carry over to other countries at all. And uh, I love the fact it forces you just to preach a straight Bible message and not wander away from it. So it's wonderful for that. But what happened was if I'd gotten up there in English and preached that same message on God's peculiar love for the islands, it would have been of no edification to that church and people wouldn't have surrendered to preach and got lives changed and things happened. What had to happen, they had to be able to hear in their own language the Word of God. And so Paul's talking to a church, which is, Corinthian church is getting prideful. Oh, I have the tongues. Listen to what I can do. So they'd want to jump up in the middle of the congregation and just try to show what they could do. That'd be like, suppose you were a, uh, you you took some kind of language course, you know, you, these Rosetta Stones, and you'd really done well with it or whatever, yeah. And you felt like you were really good at Spanish. You wanted to show it off. Brother Brian, let's say you took Spanish, all right, and you're doing that. Now, do you speak any Spanish other than the stuff you I know you need Mexican restaurant stuff. Amen, you do, you do. And, uh, <laughs> but... But suppose you could, you could speak Spanish and you wanted everybody to know you had this, so you stood up in your class next week and, and, and taught class in Spanish. <laughs> Mrs. Short, who said to me before and commented on your teaching afterwards and it's a help to her and what something she got out of Sunday school, I don't think she'd be saying, Preacher, what's wrong with Brother Brian? And uh, <laughs> I'm like, man, he'd been hanging out at El Palomar too much, man. Something then got to his brain there. You know, yeah, 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 he's doing too many burrito. And... Uh, you wouldn't do them any good. What it would do is it would be him showing, look what I can do. So they're warning about that, aren't they? Let's finish that verse. He that, uh, for greater is he that prophesies than he that speaketh with tongues except he interpret. Why? That the church may receive edif edifying. You will notice that the great, the great push is for edification. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? He said you have to be able to understand it. By the way, I have a side note here in my Bible. The greatest virtue is charity. Its greatest application is edification. The greatest virtue is charity. Its greatest application is edification. Now, he goes on to illustrate what he just said. All right? I'm making sure I haven't jumped over something with this. Let me tell you what. Let me, let me divert back here and we'll just see how far we get with this. I'm not locked in to have to finish a certain amount here tonight. But look, look if you will, back in Acts chapter 2. Let me show you where this whole thing of, of tongues came from. Acts chapter 2. So much misunderstanding coming from a very clear situation that happened that was absolutely miraculous wherein God was very honored and glorified. It happened on the day of Pentecost. In fact, some of those who were early on teaching that unknown tongues were an ecstatic utterance that wasn't a human language 
were called Pentecostal people. It was referring back to this thing we're going to read about Pentecost here, which is the Feast of 50. It was an annual feast among the Jews. It's an important time. Jesus, after He was resurrected, was on the earth for 40 days. After that, He ascended or went back up to the Father. He told the disciples who watched Him go back up, He said, tarry, which means to wait or abide, He said, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. There was a transition that was happening. Jesus, who had been the comforter, who had been with them physically, He had taught them back in John 14, 15, and 16, when I leave, I will send you another comforter. It's interesting, another of the same kind. He said, I will send you another comforter, even the Holy Ghost of God. And He said He was sending the Holy Ghost. What was getting ready to happen was the Holy Spirit was coming to indwell believers. God had dwelt with the people. When you study the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit, you find Him coming on people, sometimes being taken off people. But something happens in the New Testament. You have a new sacrifice. You have a new priest. You have a new temple. And you have the new anointing, which is the Holy Spirit living inside a person. That's what I was teaching you about on Wednesday night. uh, Or teaching, I think it was on Sunday actually, about written where it is written, it's written in blood, it's written in your heart, and God would write His, His laws in our hearts. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. God Himself dwelling in you. Uh, the mystery that was hid from the ages, I'm quoting to you, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the thing that nobody saw clearly until it happened. So Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued and filled with power from on high. That happened at the Feast of Pentecost. You say, why would it do that? Because God was doing something absolutely wonderful there. There were Jews, devout men, we're going to read about it, from all the nations under heaven. The Jews, more than once in their history, had been scattered into all kinds of different nations. Their country had been taken over. They'd been scattered. And because of that, people had planted themselves. In fact, when they were sent to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, They were told by the prophet, plant vineyards, build houses, do business there. You're going to be there 70 years. Make yourself at home because God has you off land. By the way, part of the reason they had to be gone 70 years because they had ignored God's Sabbath for 490 years and those Sabbaths had to be repaid. And God scattered them off the land. And so what happened with that uh, you know, we're not under the Sabbath now, but you better believe the Lord always takes the Lord's day serious and always has. There's a reverence to that thing. And so what happened was, he, he, he said, you, you're scattered all over, but at Pentecost, people would literally sometimes travel for weeks and months to get back to Jerusalem. And so when this happened, and they were endued with power from on high, there were people from all over the nations that came together. There are 16 distinct geographic regions of the world mentioned in this chapter. And these people, 3,000 saved and baptized in one day. These people from all over the world that heard the Gospel then went back to where they came from and told others the Messiah has come 
and his name is Jesus. Boom! Took that, took that gospel in all the world. No technology. No sentence. This is what God did to do it. Now watch what he did. He also reversed something he'd done earlier, just temporarily. It was pretty amazing. Look at Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, the disciples, were all with one accord, they were in agreement, in one place. <clears throat> and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. That's never been duplicated. It never shows up anywhere else in the Bible in this context. There's other places where you have wind, but not like this. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. So if you imagine this coming down. Like as a fire. <coughs> Excuse me, I've lost my place there. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. That was the first time they'd had that happen. And began to speak with, what are the two words? Other tongues. Let's let the Bible define what that is. Other tongues. Is the word unknown there? Is the word unknown? Other tongues. You'll find in the exhortation and correction that Paul was given in 1 Corinthians 14, he keeps telling them if you speak in an unknown tongue, what's it profiting by? He's saying you're talking in a tongue that these people don't know. Now watch what it says here. If they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, this was an absolute miracle. They're speaking with other tongues and they don't know these languages. They're speaking this and it's heard. and they, they, it, God's doing an interpretation there. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. That's what I was telling you about. Devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, yeah, that got people's attention. And some people came to mock, as you'll see in a minute. The multitude came together and were confounded. Not confused, but confounded. They couldn't figure it out. It was beyond their comprehension level. They were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his... What's two words? Talk to me. Stay plugged in. Some of you look like you just went to Jerusalem. Come back here. Notice the two words in verse 4. Other tongues. Notice in verse 6, it says they heard them speak in their own language. It goes further to explain. They were all amazed, <clears throat> I imagine. <clears throat> Excuse me. And marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? So all these people are from Galilee. And how hear we every man in our, what are the two words? Own tongue. Let's let the Bible interpret something here. Wherein we were born. These are Jews who had grown up in other nations and had a different mother tongue. As a Jew, they would have been taught Hebrew in the rabbinical schools. But they had a mother tongue of their nation. And they said, we hear in our own tongue. Then it names them. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, Cappadocia, and in Pontius, in Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are people who had converted to the Jewish religion, but were not Hebrew in their origin. Cretes and Arabians. You have languages which do not even use the same language, the same, uh, same, uh, same uh, alphabet base here mentioned. Cretes and Arabians... We do hear them speak in our what? Tongues 
the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. They said, They're, they're about half, half sauce. What's going on with this? They spoke this. If you look back and see what it says, God gave them under other tongues. Look in verse 6. The last two words in verse 6. What are they? Own language. That every man heard them speak in his own what? Look over, if you will, in verse 11. Crees and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our what? Tongues. Tongues and languages are synonymous. And so what happens is, on this day, a miraculous thing happened. Back in Genesis, and we're not going to turn to that, but back in Genesis chapter 9, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, you have a place called the Tower of Babel. How many of you are pretty familiar with the Tower of Babel or reading about it? What happened? God had told the people to scatter into all the world, and they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They gathered together, and what always happens when you start becoming humanistic and socialistic in your, in your approach to things, they wanted to replace God with man. That is inherent evil of socialism. Socialism is horrible economically. It's horrible. It's, it's totally dysfunctional. But that's not the inherent evil. The inherent evil is it wants to replace God with man. The state will take care of you. The state will educate we the, the, the public public uh, officials. We are worried about educating our children. Got news for you: they're not your children. They're not the governor's children. They're not the board of education's children. They dead sure aren't the president's children. They're the parent the parents' children. And the evil of socialism and the worst evil of communism is it takes and replaces God with man. And so what happens is. They began that first process of that began in a place called the, the plains of Shinar. And the term that they used was go to now. That's an in-your-face statement of we're going to do what we want. Go to now. They said we're not going to scatter. In fact, we're going to build us a tower that will reach to heaven. So do you think that they thought they could actually reach heaven? Perhaps so. It's what it says. I think it may be some... Uh, uh, May have been some effort they thought they were going to get above any future flood if there was one, because they'd come past the judgment of God. And they said, Go to now. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. God came down and looked at the city which they had begun to build. And I love it. He says, Go to now. Isn't that classic? Go to now. God says, Yeah, go to now. Let's see how this works. He doesn't send an earthquake to take him down. He doesn't do any of that. You know what he does? You ready for this? The same word you just heard a few moments ago. He confounded their language. Not confused, confound. They no longer can understand each other. They're working together on this big project and there's one language. The Bible is very specific in Genesis 11. The world was all of one speech and one language. Not only did they have a common language, but they didn't have diversity of dialect. They could completely understand each other. You can't travel across our country and do that. You can't travel across Ohio and do that. You can't travel across Lancaster and do that. But, it, but they were of one, one language, one speech, and God confounded their speech. They could not understand each other. And you know what they had to do? They had to abandon the building project. And they scattered. 
Do you know how they separate it out? According to language division. Just like you have in every major metropolitan, because you have the population groups go to the people they can converse with. Read about it. You say, well, that's an interesting sociological study. This was happening thousands of years before they did, you know, invented the word sociology. That's what God taught us. He confounded their language. You know what he did on the day of Pentecost? For a brief moment of time there? Put it all back together. He didn't make one language, but he made those people from all over the, the, the different nations to understand the same message and they could hear it and understand it. It's like he swapped that thing back around for that temporary moment so that his gospel message could go from that little city of Jerusalem without worldwide it can take you months and years to hear about something. Instead, God says, here, I'll show you how you get the gospel into all the world. Right away. Boom. And back they go. And lo and behold, as people visit those areas later, they find people who've already heard the gospel message. How'd that get there? Because God's very interested in getting the gospel to mankind. Isn't that an amazing thing? There's a whole, a whole bunch more with it. I will promise you that. Let me give you just two things and we'll, we'll finish reading and go to the house. There's a whole lot more I'd like to give you, but I've got more ham on the hog than you can eat in one setting. Look down in verse 7. Well, let's, let's read down to verse 7. Verse 6 says, Now, brethren, I, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, we understand what that means now, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or knowledge or prophesying or doctrine? Then the illustration, for even things without life, giving sound, whether pipe, harp, except they give it a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harp? You can come up here, one of our little children could come up and bang around on the piano. Of course, we'd make them quit. But they'd bang around on that piano and think they had a song going, be caterwauling like a cat. Nobody would be knowing what they're doing. Even something without life has to give a distinction of sound. You can't just amalgamate and run all the sound together. It doesn't do anything. Verse 9, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle. They had certain notes that had to be hit, certain calls that had to be hit, so they'd know it's time to go to the battle. Or maybe they're just playing Reveille. Or maybe, you know, it's taps. Or maybe it's, you know, uh, they're supposed to come to the chow. They don't need, you know, they have a distinct thing for what's going on. A couple of thoughts with that. I want you to understand. Uh, this was interesting. The, the, the commentator Matthew Henry made a statement regarding that. He said, what cannot be understood cannot edify. What cannot be understood cannot edify. That's, boy, that has so many different levels of application. I won't even start down that trail right now. Um, I thought I had on it uncertainty, which is a lack of distinction in the sounds, leads to unpreparedness for battle, according to what Scripture says there. Unpreparedness for battle leads both to a lack of victory. Now, a lack of victory is that nothing is gained for our king. As well as defeat. The two are not synonymous. Defeat is being overcome by our adversary. Lack of victory, nothing's gained for our king. Defeat is we're actually overcome by our adversary. And if there's not a preparedness for battle, you're defeated. If you know somewhat about history, and you know about the battles of Midway and the Coral Sea, a pivotal points in the war in the Pacific against the Japanese a navy, which was a massively powerful force, 
you would know that there were miraculous aspects to that and just absolute amazing things that happened. But our people were prepared. There was a strategy to it. There was a, there was a code that was broken regarding the fresh water on Midway that helped them to understand what the Japanese were doing. There was preparedness and forethought. And, and we were outnumbered. We tend to think, especially my age and younger, we tend to think, oh yeah, America just showed up in World War II, whooped everybody and that was it. We were latecomers to the party. England held the, held the, held this line for a long time without us. And it wasn't certain we were going to win it. Now, the Japanese and the Germans both knew, you know, it was bad news when this country got cranked up because of our capacity to do things, just militarily what we could do. But we didn't have experience. They're pulling boys off literally hand plows and giving them six weeks of training and sending them against the Wehrmacht, which is a mechanized uh, military like the world had never seen. Highly trained, highly experienced soldiers. I mean, we were, we were just outclassed. And in the early days, outclassed in all the armaments too. You ever, you ever seen the comparison between the Sherman tank and one of the Tigers that the Germans had? I don't want to be in the Sherman when Tigers after you. It, it's, not, it's not a good thing. And, and so even early on, of course, the British RAF came up and, and, and thank God uh, they, they, they had a lot of, a lot of good, good effect fighting against the Luftwaffe. But I mean, you know, until we got the P-41 Mustang, we were not in the same class as the Messerschmitts in that. That was a good play. The Zeros, Corsair did all right with it, maneuverability, but that was, I mean, you're talking, you know, and by the way, that's Mitsubishi, amen? So you go down the road. If you, if you own a Mitsubishi, make sure when you're driving, you go, come across me. I'm going to attack something. Right? But it's, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people in Columbus must drive those. But what, what, what I'm trying to tell you is, uh, and you read about these things. You, you see about these things going in. You see about the battle going in. And what happened? Coral Sea, Midway, we did pretty well. By the way, there was something that predated those. It's called Pearl Harbor. Anybody know what the stats were like on that? We didn't do so well, did we? We just and, and just by God's grace, our cruisers weren't in Pearl at the time. We'd been done. You said, what was the difference? The difference was preparedness. Japan declared war after they attacked. December 7th. Sunday morning, and all of a sudden flights and planes come in, are attacking from every side. Men didn't have a chance to know what hit them. These poor fellows on their zone got blown into atoms and didn't have a chance to do anything. One bomb went right into a magazine, just took it out. So what was the difference between Coral Sea and Midway where America triumphed while they were outnumbered? Preparedness. I will tell you the difference between victory and defeat is preparedness. And the big thing about preparedness is no uncertain sound when it comes to the Word of God. Which brings me to the conclusion of the whole thing here. Truly good and loving church that's seeking to have a biblically founded faith is going to be a place where you encounter clear, declarative, an unambiguous truth. This may at times disturb you. The question must not be, does it bother me? But is it biblical? Because we need a clear, distinct sound. 
of something going out from the Word of God where nobody will wonder what the Word of God's about. I'll leave you to read the last verses. I think you can do that, all right? I wanted to give you that tonight. Let me pray with you and be done. There's other, but let's, let's finish with that. Father, help me, Lord, to live and to love what You've taught us tonight through Your Word. Pray that Your people will have a heart to do so also. will be blessed with You and strength to do so. And Lord, may we have a, uh, have a fidelity to You. Lord, not being prideful and puffed up over what You give us to do, but Lord, uh, may we have charity and edification among us. Help us, Lord, to give forth a clear, distinct sound in our individual lives, among our families. May each head of the household that's here in this congregation not be afraid to stand in their proper place to give forth a clear, distinct, loving sound of this is our direction. Here's what we believe. Lord, may they be kind. May they know how to teach. Bless them and help them. Father, I pray you'll help us to live for you and to follow you. And God, may we follow after charity. Help us to do that as a church and individually. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, please. There's something you want to bring to the Lord tonight. Won't you do it now during our invitation time? Would you come? Why don't you be a part of the clear sound of your church? This is what we are. This is where we're going. Here's what the Bible teaches. By the way, Bible content and Bible authority. That's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to follow it. And may God help us to do it.